We've been in this series. Uh, we're, we're getting close, believe it or not, to the end of this series. I say close, there's probably five, maybe more after this. So, I mean, I guess like the equivalent of what some churches is, uh, is one series, is like how much is left in our series. But we, we've got, we're getting close. We've actually just today entered chapter five. So we just started, we're going to start chapter five of 1 John. And it's just a, it's just been an amazing journey, kind of sorting through this epistle, this letter that the Apostle John wrote to his church. And, I, and, and I'm just, I'm really excited about what God's been doing in it, from the emails we've been getting from you guys, the text messages, the conversations we've been having. It's just been a really good, uh, good thing, I think. It's been very timely from what we've heard. And so thank you guys for all of your responses and your reactions to that. It definitely helps us know kind of what works, what doesn't, what we should do more of, what we shouldn't do any more of. So uh, we're excited. So I'm just going to get right into it today. There's, there's a decent amount to cover today after I tie my shoe. Uh, but we're going to open up our Bibles together to 1 John 5, verse 1 through 5. Now, so again, we're in chapter 5 now, which is super exciting. I cannot, I'm, I cannot believe we've come this far. And this is what it says. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So anybody who loves the Father, anybody who loves God, loves the children of God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So that's kind of flipped from what we've heard before. Now he's saying we show us that we love people because we love God. And by this we, love, know the, by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. But then he says this, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'm like, they're not People are like, wait, I don't know. We'll get to that in a minute. And this is, this is kind of where we're going to focus most of the message today is on verse 4 and verse 5. It says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Jesus Thank you so much, Father God, that you've given us just a beautiful 4th of July week, Father God, that it was, it was hot and then it cooled down a little bit and uh, now it's just beautiful out, Father God. We, uh, once again, we pray a hedge of protection over every single person uh, who's in our church, who's not here today, who's been traveling, who's been uh, just enjoying the time. Some of them are in Mexico, some of them are in Florida, some of them are up north, some of them are in New York. Um, just d- different reports from people all over the place, God. Right now, wherever they are, Lord, we pray peace and protection and uh, just hedge of protection around them and that you'd be there with them, God. That they would know how much they're missed. But right now, Father God, I pray for everybody who is here. God, we're so grateful, Lord, that you've just given us the space that we can come together and we can be together in and we can meet in and we can study your word and wrestle with what it says together, Father God. And right now, I pray that your spirit would just be so present in this place today. It would be so evident, God, that your love would be manifest through the words that I say today, God, and that people would leave here clearly seeing a better picture, a more clear picture of how much you love them and what that means for our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me today. Let everything you would have me to say, let me say that and let everything else fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to share 
something with you about the Greek word for the word faith. I'm not going to do it yet. I'm going to do it in a few minutes. But I'm going to talk about this Greek word faith. And, and my hope is that it kind of shifts your thinking just a little bit. Faith, okay? Now, but before I do that, because faith is one of those epicenter, like, pinnacle words of the Christian faith that uh, you got to be really careful with how you uh, kind of dissect it uh, because of what it means to people, I do want to say this before I get into this at all. By saying what I will say to you about this word, I am not in any way saying that you are saved by anything other than the grace of Jesus Christ. Okay, I believe that with all of my heart. The gospel message, the message that we exist to share with the world is that we are saved by grace because of what Jesus did for us. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, kind of, there's a lot of different ways you could explain it, but the big idea is that you and I realize, okay, we come to terms with the fact that we cannot save ourselves. That on our own, we will always fall short of who it is that we are supposed to be and who it is that God has destined for us to be. We, but then at the same time, we also realize that Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus never sinned. But, but we do sin. And because we do sin, and because the Bible does say that the wages of sin is death, because of that, God had to send his only son to come to live a perfect life for us and to die for our sins so that we could eventually share in heaven with God. Now that is the gospel when it comes to salvation, okay? And I want you to be very clear to know that that is the gospel. We're not changing that. Nothing's changing about that. But this is what most people tend to do. Most people confuse the idea of us getting into heaven someday with the kingdom of heaven and what God wants to do in our lives today and right now. A lot of people view eternity as this someday down the road thing when really what eternity is, it's a, is, is a now until forever thing. It's something that we have stepped into right now. We are walking alongside of in, on a path toward right now. We're part of it now. See, we believe at this church that God wants to make us into the kind of people whose daily lives contribute to telling the Jesus story. Okay? We believe that. We believe that the entire Bible is the Jesus story. The entire Bible is the story of Jesus. And it's not just the fact that he died for us, even though that's a really big point and that it's very, very important. But it's also the fact that he resurrected. It's also the fact that after he resurrected and continued to disciple the disciples for 40 days, he eventually ascended. And after ascending, he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay? We believe that because of where Jesus is now seated, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king, if you will. Okay? So Jesus is king, and we believe that we are ambassadors for that king here on this earth. Okay? When what that means is that our loyalty... And what we do with our lives here, it's always based on the things that Jesus asks of us and expects of us. So the church, you and I, the body, we exist to make Jesus known in our world. We exist to make Jesus known in our communities that's why we are here. And we genuinely, genuinely believe that Jesus is the only hope for our world. 
That's why we give so much of our lives to it. That's why we show up every week and learn how can we be a better vessel of this, a better conduit of this message. Because we believe that there is no other message by which people have any hope besides this one. So we believe that we get to be a part of making all things new even right now today. We get to be part of finding the solutions. We get to be active in our communities. So the whole point of that is to say this. Very, very, very little, very little of what the gospel is all about is actually in regards to someday later. Okay? Yes, we genuinely, wholeheartedly believe that we do have a blessed hope, something to look forward to, heaven on the other end of this life. We believe all of that. We believe that one day it will all be made new. But what we also believe is this, and sometimes we don't like to admit this, but we just have to come to terms with this, okay? We have to trust God. We have to have faith in God, which we're going to talk about. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what God does with eternity is out of our hands. But what we do with the world that God has given us today, well, that's in our hands. That's in our control. So that is where we focus. But we read words like faith. And even when John says what he says here, he says about believing in God, like we think believing in God is the end all because if you believe in God, well, that will get you the end that you're looking for. Yet John makes it very, very clear that if you actually believe in God, there will actually be a result, a turn in your life in the direction of love. So the gospel power in your life, it is not merely a saving power, it is also a transformative power. And if you read this entire letter uh, that we get from the Apostle John, you see the way that John just, he keeps circling, constantly returning back to this idea that the gospel should be making us more and more and more loving. It's, it should just kind of create this circle of loving God and loving people. And when we love God, it shows that we love people. And when we love people, it shows that we love God. And you just see it just circles. And it circles. And it circles. It's a lifeline. It's an energy that should fuel community. It should fuel our interactions and our conversations with each other. And it should fuel our compassion for other people. And... I just felt like before I get into this, I kind of needed to frame that for you before we get into kind of what I'm going to share with you about faith. Because you have to understand faith in that context to understand faith is not just about believing something is going to happen. Faith is about a transformation that takes place in your life today and what you then bring to our world because of it. One thing that I... uh, I think in this passage, we've been studying this passage uh, right now, we just started chapter 5. And one thing that I think that people... uh, overlooked sometimes. I've, I've, you know, I've read a lot of commentaries about kind of the flow of this book and all that, but one thing that I think a lot of people don't notice is that chapter 4 ends by talking about fear, and then chapter 5 begins by talking about faith. And of course, we know when, when John wrote this letter, he didn't write it like, this is chapter 1, this is chapter 2. He just wrote a letter, and then we later decided, hey, what's the best way to break this up? When Paul wrote his letters, he doesn't write chapter 1, chapter 2, this is Romans 3. He says, no, this is just my letter to Romans. This is my letter to Galatia. 
to the churches. Like, he, we did that later. But, but if, you, if you realize it, he's actually on a train of thought where he's talking about fear, and then all of a sudden he goes right into this thing of talking about faith. And these are two things that are often considered to be opposite things, but in reality, they're actually more related than they are opposite. Now, there's all sorts of problems with fear, especially more than anything else when it comes to salvation, there's a very big problem with fear. If you become a Christian, if you use fear as a tactic to get other people to become a Christian, okay? If, if a person gets saved because of fear, as in you're afraid of what will happen, if you don't become a Christian, like as in you don't want to go to hell, I'm just afraid of this, and so I'm going to become a Christian. If you become a Christian that way, then you will live your whole life believing that just as easily as you became a Christian, you could lose the gospel in your life. It's, just, it's a fact. If fear is the driving factor in your God encounter, as in how you meet God, then fear will also be the dictating factor in how you experience God throughout your life. There's this very powerful statement Actually, Aaron Lawn, who's coming next, next, uh, next week to do worship, he tweeted this statement, and I'd never even heard it before. He, didn't, he, didn't, he was quoting somebody. But the statement says this. He says that whatever you uh, win people with, you're going to have to keep them with. And he, I remember he posted that at Christmas time, and the kind of the idea was this, and it's, it's very, very true. It's like, hey, we want to be generous, and sometimes, sometimes generosity is the, is the way that we communicate love to people. So we help them with something, right? And he says we should do that, but you have to be kind of careful of that, because if, if, if somebody's only seeing this part of your salvation where, say, I can get something out of this, like I, they come, I come to church and they give me a toy, which we do at Christmas, or I come to church and they give me groceries, which we do when we can for people, then, then they, but then they come back to church and they don't get anything and they're used to being just for these things, then suddenly you sometimes don't see them anymore because they weren't won by the love of Jesus. They weren't actually won by the gospel. They were won by the donations. And so, we're, so when we do those things, we try to make sure we couple it with, hey, we really want to meet a need, but we also, you need to understand that there's a spiritual need that is deep within you, and it is more than just food. It is more than just Christmas. You understand what I'm saying? So, so, we, so we have to win people with the gospel, but it's the exact same principle when it comes to fear, right? It applies completely. If you become a Christian because of fear, you will only remain a Christian as long as you remain afraid of whatever it was that caused you to become a Christian in the first place. And that is an awful, fruitless, completely debilitated way to live your Christian life. So on the contrary, our goal at Courage Church is we want to win people by our love. That's, isn't that what Jesus says? He says they'll know you by your love. We want to be a demonstration of that love and understanding that that sometimes means meeting people where they are and meeting practical needs. But ultimately, we want to win people with the love of Christ that shows people, my gosh, I am nothing without Jesus. I am completely broken without Jesus. And in today's message, John tells us what it is that our victory, that is our victory to overcome the world, and it is not fear. You will never overcome anything with fear. You won't change the world by making decisions out of fear. But John says this in, uh, in verse 4. He says, this is the second half of verse 4, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Faith and fear, they are not opposites. 
They're actually the exact same thing, directed in opposite places. Fear takes every bit as much faith as, as it does to believe in Jesus. It takes just as much faith to believe that something else is more powerful than Jesus as it is to believe that Jesus can overcome the world. It takes just as much faith to believe that you have a reason to, believe, that, to be afraid as it takes to believe that God is actually in control of your life. And really all fear is, is it's putting your faith in the wrong thing. It's, it's all that it is. It's faith in something, it's, it's faith that believes that something else is bigger than God. And when you live your life in fear, you truly are living your life believing that God is not as big as the things that may oppose you. But we need to look at this closely. Because this one line about faith, it's actually, if you read that whole passage, which we did, it's completely surrounded by a lot of words that seem to be saying something more than just believing God. Because the entire section is about transformation. The entire section is about how do I become more loving? How do I become, how do I keep the commandments? How do I change my life? And yet John says it's faith that will overcome and will be our victory. Real quick, does anybody know what the Greek word for victory is? Do any uh, sports fans have any guesses as to what the word might be for victory in the Greek? All right, I'll give you another hint. Does any, do any shoe fans have any idea what the Greek word might be for victory? The Greek word for victory is the word Nike. N-I-K-E, Nike, just as it is. So for your shoe lovers in here, that should hopefully make some sense, right? Nike literally means victory. There's nothing more to it than that. This was a very excellent choice of a name for a company that is trying to sell shoes that convince their customers that if you have said shoes, you're going to be a winner. You will be a winner if you have the shoes. They are the biggest sponsor of all of the biggest sports players, right? Like this character who, uh, who, left, who left the team. Apparently, I don't know. Are all the Quicken Loans people upset about this? I don't, I don't know. Uh, so this guy, has, he doesn't always win, but he always makes it to the finals. He's been to the finals what is it, nine years in a row. This, this guy, LeBron James, has done that. Okay? And then there's this guy, Tiger Woods. Nike, 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 Nike. Um, my friends just made a documentary about him. I haven't watched it, but it's probably really good. You should, you should um, watch it. And then there's this guy. This Ronaldo something, I, don't, I have no idea who he is, but apparently he's extremely famous for being really good at this sport called, what's it called, Bill? What's it called? Football? This game called soccer. Nike, Nike, Nike. And then, of course, we all know this one, Michael Jordan. These are the absolute, absolute best players at what they do. The word means victory. They always win. But this is kind of fascinating. The word overcome, which you also see there, also comes from the word Nike, but it's a slightly different word. It's the word Nikeo. It comes from Nike, but it, mean, it, it actually has several meanings, which is very fascinating. It could mean to subdue. It means to bring under control, to conquer, to overcome, or to prevail. It could mean any of those things. A very wide spectrum of definitions, which I'm going to talk to you guys about that concept in a minute. The thing that makes us the Michael Jordans of our mission, the thing that helps us to overcome, it's not our shoes. I'd be in a lot of trouble if it were our shoes. 
It's our faith. It's our faith. And um, one thing that's very important to understand, and I know today's a little bit different. I'm, I'm, trying, to just, I'm trying to help you understand this concept um, when it comes to like Greek and Hebrew, because I know some of you have been here when I've showed you like how you can go online and you can get on like Blue Letter Bible and you can study the Greek, even if you don't, aren't fluent and can read fluently or speak Hebrew or Greek fluently, you can still study these words and figure out kind of what's at the root of them. And I kind of want to explain to you just briefly as to kind of how we come up with these and how we translate these. A lot of people are like, well, why do we need so many translations of the Bible? What's wrong with the King James or the New King James? Or why do we need another one? And why is the NIV? And then there's a new NIV and then another NIV. Like, what is the reason for that? And one thing that's very important when you're studying the Greek or you're studying the Hebrew in the Bible is you have to understand that a lot of these words, like the word we just showed you, um, they're, they're somewhat flexible in what they may or may not mean. Sometimes there can be more than one definition for a word, like the word overcome. Now, all those definitions for overcome were very similar but they're, sometimes they're not as similar either, right? And so when you're studying it and you're translating it, um, the people who translate it, they have to be very mindful of the Holy Spirit because you, you have to kind of, to a degree, take a certain amount of liberty to figure out what is it that this is trying to say. But you're not just making it up either because there's kind of a way that you do that. So really what the Bible translators do is they go through the Hebrew and they go through the Greek, and what they have to do is they have to look at all the different ways in which these words are used, really forever throughout time, from the Bible and throughout the, uh, these other manuscripts that we might have, and then from all these usages of these words, they have to make the determination of what is this word saying? What is consistent in it? What is it saying and what does it mean in most instances? So that's part of the reason that we get updated versions of the Bible because a new manuscript may come out that has a word that we've only had a couple usages of ever and then all of a sudden now we, we find a new manuscript that makes it very clear what this word means and it's not exactly the same that we did. So they update the concordances and the lexicons and all that stuff. That's why they do that. Now, it can be very easy to believe that because these words have so many different possible meanings, there's just no way to know what they really mean. But that's actually not true at all. Learning these various words um, and the way that they're used, they actually give us a lot more clarity. And there are people that their whole lives are just to figure this out. And it makes it, it actually helps them really pinpoint it as to how it's being used in the Bible. So for example, the word Nike. In the Bible, you only get that word one time. You don't get it anywhere else in the entire Bible. So there's nowhere to compare that word to to see what else it might be. So you have to look at this. So if you don't have another document, with Nike we do have documents in Greek mythology and all these different things that came from that. Um, that the Nike is like, later found like in Greek mythology they said Nike is like the Greek goddess of victory. Like it, there's all sorts of things that stemmed from this word. But initially... When you're looking at the Bible, you have one word in the entire Bible to go off of. So you have to figure out what, is the mo what could this word that we've never seen before be saying in this sentence, um, in this sentence full of other words that we do know what they mean and what they're from and we have more clarity on. So a lot of these words show up in places all throughout the Bible and in other writings. So, so, when, so when we get the word used in different ways at different times, it actually gives translators this kind of job of determining, well, what does this writer mean? What is he trying to say in this instance? And so the word faith is one of those words. The word faith is the word pistis. Now, pistis is a neutral word. It doesn't have to mean faith in Jesus. It's just faith. And as a neutral word, it could simply mean a moral conviction. But when you, when you 
hone in on Christianity in the way it's used in the Bible, the biblical usage of this word is typically defined more like this, a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, Jesus is our King. He is our Lord. He's seated at the right hand of God through whom we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God. Which, of course, this is extremely loaded. This definition covers a lot, but really it seems to just kind of, in a complicated way, say all the things that we already believe. Right? But, there's a, and then, but then there's a second context you can use for the word faith. And I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, but it's the word faithfulness. It's the exact same word. Faithfulness is still just pistis. It's not another variation of it. It's the character of one who can be relied on. Now, the word faith typically throughout the New Testament is used to describe belief in Jesus. Like even here. uh, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Believe comes from the word pistis, but it is not the word pistis, it's the word pistuo. Which, again, it comes from it, but they're, they're almost the same word, but they're not exactly the same. It's as close as Nike and Nikeo are. In the same way that overcoming and victory are directly connected, yet they're not the same, right? You have to overcome something before you get the victory. These words are connected, but they're not the same. But the difference matters. It matters a lot. For example, the gospel. Most, if you were to summarize the gospel in one verse, if I had one verse, maybe I'd use John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son, who shall ever believe with him, so shall not perish, but have eternal life. Another one I would use is, is uh, Ephesians 2.8, which says, you are saved by grace through faith alone. Okay? Now, nobody who has any biblical understanding would ever say, well, you are saved by grace through belief if we, if we were to say that, we would feel, we'd feel funny saying that, wouldn't we? Nobody says, well, yeah, I'm, I'm saved by grace through belief alone. No, we know that that's not right, because belief and faith are actually two different words. But yet, most people think that that's what it's saying, or belief. But slight differences can make a big difference. There can obviously be no doubt that faith and belief are directly connected to each other. In fact, I would say that belief is probably the first, is actually the first step in having faith. But it's not the same thing, even though a lot of us consider it to be the same. So if we were to say we have faith in Jesus, what most of us are really saying is that we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe, we believe Jesus to be the one true God. We believe that God sent his only son. Uh, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. Death couldn't hold him down. All the stuff I said at the beginning, right? He resurrected. That's belief, Right? Now, that's an important thing, but it is not an end thing. It is not a final destination, right? What does James say? You believe, pistuo, that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe, and they shudder. The New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, but it says it very, it explains it very well. You say that you have faith. For you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. You think that you have faith simply because you believe it. You think that a mere belief in the existence of God 
is the same as faith in Jesus Christ? Well, no, it's not the same. Even the demons believe. They know that God exists. They know that Jesus exists, and yet they're terrified of him because of what is going to happen to them. So true faith is something more than just belief. James pairs it with works of righteousness. James says it like this. He's like, I'm not saved by my works, but my works do demonstrate my faith. But the word itself, right, the word itself, pistis, it actually, when you look at its definitions, actually in there, it actually does offer some insight into the meaning of this word. See, in our world, we tend to dumb down the word faith, and we dumb it down to belief. And the reason we do that is because our world just simply, we default to doubt. The first thing that people are going to do in our world is they hear about something, they're going to doubt that thing, right? So for somebody to even believe in God in our world, that would be a huge step forward, wouldn't it? That'd be a lot further than, well, there is no God. To say there is a God is a huge step forward. You look at the world. If a person looks around, they see the universe. They see the world. They say, wow, there's no way that this is all just an accident. Everything is so perfectly aligned. Like you realize there's just, there has to be a God, right? That's belief, But beyond belief, loaded kind of into the many, many different ways that this word pistis is used throughout the Bible and throughout other uh, documents in the ancient world, is also the concept of having an oath to someone. A statement of loyalty that you say, I'm going to stand by this person. A word that a lot of uh, people like to use is the word allegiance. Because why? Jesus is king. If Jesus is king of your life, he's sitting on the throne, then simply believing that that king exists, I mean, that's good. It's a step in the right direction, but it's going to certainly fall short of a life that's going to make any sort of impact on culture, any sort of impact on society, any sort of impact on people's lives. It's not going to change your community by just saying, oh, I believe that God exists. You're not going to overcome the world by acknowledging, oh, there is another world somewhere. You have to engage the one that you do have with the news that you've been given. Acknowledging the king's existence is one thing, but aligning your life with the king's purposes is something totally different. A scholar uh, named Matthew Bates, uh, he recently published a book all about allegiance and how it does, in, in all instances of faith, it's probably not the best translation, but in a lot of times, this, this is a really appropriate way you can translate it. Is you can translate the word as, uh, the word pistis as allegiance, and it's a fascinating uh, discovery that's really, really worth considering when you think about it. Basically, the idea is that pistis is a loyalty that says, I'm with Jesus. I'm with the way of Jesus. Even when it's not the way of America. Even when it's not the way of all of my friends. Even when it's not the way that's going to give me the absolute most comfortable life all the time. When you read it this way, it actually explains a lot. It explains why John, when he writes this, if you, if you notice this very carefully, John at the very beginning of chapter 5, he starts talking about how Jesus was born of the Son of God. Right? He says that Jesus is God's Son. Okay. Now, watch, watch this. In those days in Rome, they had these little coins that, that would be circulating. And on these coins were the letters D-I-V-I-F, which meant Son of the Divine. And they had Caesar's picture on them. Which, so basically this coin was saying Caesar is the son of God. It was commonly practiced in that day that the Roman armies would attack Christians and they would ask them, hey, who is the Lord? And if, they, if the Christian would respond and say Caesar is Lord, then they would be left alone. But if they said Jesus is Lord, which is what most of them said, they would often be beaten, enslaved, sometimes killed for what they said. 
And what John is saying here by at the very beginning saying Jesus is the Son of God, not Caesar, Jesus. What he's saying is even in this extremely tense political climate that we're in right now, there's only one thing that will overcome the world. And that is allegiance to, loyalty to, faith in Jesus. It's more than just belief. And in John's day, it was getting people killed by the very system that John says that faith will ultimately overcome. But do you see the way that fear can have no part in a faith like that? You can't have allegiance to Jesus while at the same time being a slave to fear of what could happen because you have that allegiance to him. Paul says this in Romans 8, 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is First this is John in a nutshell. You're God's children now. You don't need to be afraid now. You're not a slave to sin. You're a child of God. God did not overcome the world so that you could be afraid of the world. Death was not defeated by Jesus so that you could be fearful of death. The spirit of fear is a spirit of slavery. It is absolute bondage. It is loyalty to a power that has control over your life. And if you have it, you will never be who God created you to be. Or maybe this would be an easier way for you to understand it. Uh, Pistis. I I said this earlier, uh, but it's used here in 1 John as faith. It's identical to the word in Galatians 5 when Paul gives us the fruit of the Spirit, which... um, it's talking about something that is develops in us. And the most accurate usage of the word is something there, that the character of one who can be relied on, right? Because it's something that can be inside of us. We did a whole sermon on this a couple of years ago. So usually when you and I think of faith, and we use it this way, we think of God's character uh, being one that we can rely on. And that's true. We can trust God. But the fruit of the Spirit, at least the way that it's translated now, they don't translate it as faith anymore. Now they translate it as faithfulness. As in something that we can actually become. We can become the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit lives in us. When the Spirit's in us, then we become someone who can be relied on. Someone who knows God. And someone who knows that, that God knows that we're going to be there for people that he's called us to. Someone who our love is not going to waver for God or for other people whenever something gets hard. Faith is not just belief. Because the gospel is not just about where you are going someday. It's also about the world that we are creating here and now today. Faith is an allegiance to that belief that cannot be brought down by our circumstances. And it turns us into someone who is faithful. Someone who is faithful. And if we're going to truly be ambassadors, which we are ambassadors of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, it's our stable verse. We need to make sure that we are faithful to the one who we're representing. The victory that will overcome the world, it's not a bunch of people who believe the right things. The victory that will overcome the world is when the church understands that belief is only the first step in changing your heart. And as your heart changes and your life begins to reflect Jesus more and more, your life begins to reflect all those changes in our world. So love becomes your default. And taking care of your neighbor becomes your default. And sharing and serving becomes the way that you live your life because we're so devoted to our Savior. 
And every single day, as our faith continues to grow, we're being made more and more in his image. And as you all already know, his image is love. Our belief that Jesus is Lord, it should lead us to an instant reaction that springs us to our feet and leads us to take whatever action is necessary to show as many people as possible the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why we exist. It's the good news that Jesus is Lord. He's on the throne. You don't have to live in hopelessness anymore. The corrupt systems that may exist in our world, they will eventually fail, but love will last forever. And that's a big job. And it may come as a cost. It certainly came at a cost for John and his friends. But yet in the midst of this, and I'm going to close with this, in the midst of all that, John was able to confidently say these words. His commandments are not burdensome. And I thought about that. I'm like, why? His commands are not burdensome. Why? It seems to me like his commands would be the very definition of being burdens. And you can come back up. I, I believe that John, I, I was trying to figure this out. How, does, how is it that, how is it not a burden? I, I believe that John, though, he had to come to this place in his own life. I believe he came, you know, we talked a few weeks ago about how he kind of learned love. He became more and more and more loving. And I believe he had to come to a place in his own life where he so completely embodied the love of Jesus everywhere that he went. He loved people genuinely everywhere that he went. And he was so faithful to that love everywhere that he went that eventually the hard things became easy. The difficult things aren't so difficult when they're done in love, are they? You know, for instance, in, in, in Genesis, when Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, uh, his, Rachel's father Laban said, okay, you can marry her, but you first have to work for her for seven years. It's a long time. And so and this is what the Bible says. It says that Jacob worked for Rachel, and he served Laban for seven years, and those seven years only felt like a few days because of how much he loved her. He didn't see it as a burden, he didn't see the weight he had to carry over seven years. He saw the other side of it. He saw the return. And love made it easy. And suddenly it wasn't too much to carry. Seven years felt like a few days because of love. If we can just begin to see people, guys, through that same lens, where we, we see people through this lens that says, this person is worth it. This person is worth it. They're worth it. They're worth it. They're worth it then it won't feel so heavy every time you try to do something for another person. Allegiance to Jesus, faithfulness to Jesus, it, it, it means faithfulness to his mission, and his mission is always going to be about other people. That's why we're here. And if we can get over the fact that we worked for the things that we have, it will become so much easier to give it to somebody who needs it more than we do. The burden is as heavy as we make it. And this is what I mean by that. You're probably wondering, what do you mean by that? Paul in, um, in Ro Romans, he says, I want your love to be genuine. Okay, genuine love, right? If it's fabricated, we're not gonna be faithful to it. 
If our love for God is fabricated, it's going to waver. We're eventually going to just stop doing it. If it's out of fear, eventually we're going to stop doing it. Or we're going to live our whole lives in fear. If your love is not genuine, then anything that you do for another person is going to feel like a sacrifice. Which ultimately will feel like a burden. Which ultimately means we will stop doing it. If your love for another is genuine though, then everything you do for another person becomes a blessing, not a burden. Dawn reminded me of this story uh, a couple days ago. We were at her mom's house and we were, we were all talking about this story about when Dawn and I were dating. And for Dawn's birthday, we were still dating at the time, I bought her a brand new iPod. Do you guys remember iPods? It was awesome. It was this black iPod. It had this scrolling thing on it. Like it didn't have the touch screen yet. Um, but it, it was not cheap. Like I had to save my money for it. it was the, this was the first version that could actually play video. So you could actually like put videos on it. And I, I personally had the previous year's model and uh, the one that wasn't color yet. And it was like one tone, black and white and no video, um, but it still played music. Um, so I was so excited to get this for her. And I, I, I saved and saved and saved. And I bought it and I loaded it up with tons of music. And I, I even went to my friend's house and I recorded this little song that I had written for her. And I made a slideshow video so I could put the video on the iPod of this song, of like these pictures of us in this horribly sun song because I'm horrible at that stuff. Trying to sing her this song just to be romantic. And, and, and when I, and so I saved and I saved and I finally bought it. And when I got it and I was able to give it to her, I did not even for a moment think about what it cost me. It was my joy to finally be able to give that to her. I didn't think about the, all the money that was not in my account anymore and how there was no money in my account anymore. I didn't think about that. So on her birthday, I gave that to her. And just, just a couple of weeks later, she was in the library at school. She's on the phone with me, which you shouldn't be on the phone at the library. <laughs> I was thinking about that. We're talking, through, we're talking through the story. And while she's on the phone with me at the library, somebody stole her iPod from, from the thing. And she, she, I'm on the phone with her when she realizes this, and she's just devastated. She was just so upset. She was heartbroken. And I didn't have enough money to buy her another one because I'd already emptied my bank account. It was all gone. But I did have an older one that I was using. And without hesitation, I just determined, I'm going to give her mine. <laughs> so she was downgraded. <laughs> it was a downgrade. But it was something. And even though I listened to that thing every single day before that day, there was not a day that went by after when I ever missed that iPod. In fact, every time I even thought about it, I was happy. I wasn't sad because it was another opportunity for me to demonstrate my love for her. It was another opportunity for me to be faithful to what was in my heart toward her and show her what she meant to me. And I'm not gonna stand up here and tell you that every time I do anything for anybody, I have that same kind of heart, that same kind of mindset, that same kind of free giving spirit. But that is the goal. That is what we want out of life. People are not burdens. People are people. They're worth just as much as you are. They're worth just as much as I am. They're valuable. They're God's treasured possessions. We have got to be faithful with what God has called us to do in other people's lives. And we're not ever going to get there if we're totally wrapped up in just the things that we want Him to do in ours. We don't get there if we spend all of our time always thinking about ourselves. But what if, guys, there's actually a better way 
than that anyway? What if living a selfish life is actually costing you more? Like, I would have missed out on that experience and on that feeling if I just would have kept that money in my bank account in the first place. I didn't have to have that experience, but I would have been worse off. But guys, it actually, it takes... It takes great faith to build a life that's not about yourself. It takes a lot of work to do that. It takes a lot of faith. But if you really think about the grand scheme of life and the grand scheme of eternity, it really takes even greater faith to build a life that is only about yourself. Because whatever you build by yourself, you will forever have to bear by yourself. And you might even get to the top, but there's not going to be anybody there with you to enjoy your little fleeting world. And for me and for my family and for this church, man, I just, I want to put our faith in the right thing. I want us to use our faithfulness toward the right thing, the gospel. I want to tell people about Jesus. I want to show people Jesus. I want to teach people the message of hope. Today's passage about faith and today's passage about overcoming, it could just as easily be translated, this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faithfulness, our faithfulness, the way that we respond to what we see, the way that we respond to what God tells us, how we learn the way of Jesus until it suddenly becomes the only way in our entire lives. It's all we are. It's who we are. Guys, God responds to faith. He responds when, we're, when we have faith, but faith will always require faithfulness of you. And every single time you step out in faith and you do something that maybe seems crazy or maybe seems like it's not practical or not smart or maybe you think that this is generous but it's not really necessarily the most intelligent thing to do. I make decisions like that sometimes. But guys, if you give God a chance to show up, he always does. Every single time. Every single time.